This is Shifron Stop, a fun podcast about games and cultural stuff and comedy and interviews. And we've got Joanna Neary with us today. Hi, Jo. Hello. Hi. Lovely to see you and talk mm-hmm. to you. I saw her at Helen and Ollie's book launch. Oh, oh look at you nice. showing off with your showbiz friends. Well, they came on. You met them as well. <laughs> it's not exclusive. Anyway, Jo was there and I said, Jo, you should definitely come on our show because <laughs> everyone will love it. And people, people might know Joe Neary. Mm. Joe or Joanna? Oh, I don't mind whichever you prefer. Joe's quicker, isn't it? Joe's shorter. Yeah. Okay, we'll use that. <laughs> we'll get more done today if we keep it short. <laughs> I certainly recognise you from Time Trumpet, which must have been, um, I, I guess that was like four years ago now? Five yeah, years ago? that was. It was 2006. I did a gig with Adam Buxton, and, um, and afterwards he came up to me and said, Hi, my name's Amanda, and I really enjoyed it. I went, yeah, I know who you are. <laughs> you know, massive eyes, you know. And then um, about a month later, I got a phone call saying, oh, Amanda would like you to be in his new thing. But because I'm used to doing stuff in Brighton with my mates, you know, and someone going, well, you be in my thing. Or like going to the pub and forming seven bands in the evening. Do you know what I mean? You all sit around going, oh, should we just be in a band? So it was almost like I felt like it was like that, you know. Oh, Amanda wants you to do his thing. And I went, all right then. I had no idea what it was. And the next day I went into film and I had this massive sketch where I was the main person in it, right? <laughs> I hadn't learnt it properly. And I had to, um, there was a massive office full of extras all doing their work. I had to march through being a really busy it's like a woman talking about finances and at the end she's sort of um, expertly shaking the coins and revealing them to the camera you know in a really sort yeah. of snappy way but I didn't really know the lines at all and, um, and it was just all a bit overwhelming Stuart Lee was there in a bald cap being interviewed as himself in the future and it was just bizarre I didn't know what it was till I saw it on telly and, um, and I did the talking heads bit so I just said to him I could do a sort of Cornishy voice and he went yeah alright then because I said because that's where I grew up you know and he went yeah do that and when I saw it I thought why didn't I just do my own voice it would have been so much better and so much more sincere or more convincing you know but anyway yeah I, I just thought it wasn't, you played it really straight though I, I thought that was your voice I just thought it was just you talking in your voice. I'm going to go, oh, you're doing a funny voice. It's just like, oh, that's obviously, that's how Joe talks. Oh, no, no, that's really nice that you didn't think it was a weird, funny voice. That's good. Mark Watson was on it. Did he do a Welsh voice? Do you remember? I can't remember. He did do it, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, I think he, I he, think he was Welsh. Welsh in it, yeah. Right, I remember so Stuart Lee and the bald cap. That was Yeah, right, got more and more bald as the time went on. <laughs> yeah. It was a brilliant idea, wasn't it? And Adam's CGI stuff was so, oh, so yeah. good, wasn't it? Was there a like, thing about Tesco's? Like taking over the world or something, and there were big Tesco's yeah. robots. Yeah. You remember that? Yeah, that was in there. everything was in it. It was it was such an amazing bit of comedy, actually. Time tr- time trumpet. Yeah, people still talk about it, don't they? Yeah. It's the Amanda Rinucci, that's yeah. so wicked. Was he was he directing it when you were talking and stuff as well? Did he sort of? control you at all um, yeah but a little bit but he's quite um, a gentle director I just remember sitting on a chair with a camera I had the script in my hand and, um, and he'd let me do because I hadn't learnt 15 pages of sound bites he let me just read, look at, glance down at it have a quick look memorise the line and then deliver it so we were able to stop and start which was really great and when I saw the final edited series I think he gave most of the actors the same set of lines you know and got us all to do you know, similar things, and then the chose one. the ones that, yeah, that fitted the person best. So that was really good. Yeah, and um, yeah, it's lovely. It was just, it was like going to, you know, back room in a pub and doing stuff. <laughs> I didn't know it was going to be on BBC Two or anything. <laughs> I didn't even know I was going to get paid. I just thought it'd be fun. No, I'm not really ashamed. I did this series. I am a bit. I'm um, this series. It was meant to be for Channel Four, but it was so rubbish. They put it on E4. 
and it's called um, Dogface, right? And when they um, released what it was going to be called, they were going to call it Party Piece, Party Pieces or something. When they released what it was going to be called on Chortle, it had Dogface in massive lettering next to a photo of me. <laughs> I was really upset. <laughs> yeah, it was awful. Yeah, we were saying, oh, I saw you in a thing called Dogface, your photograph. Yeah, um, apparently it, was, it ended up being a series um, edited in with an animated dog because the, the producer at Channel 4 had a dream about an animated dog and said, oh, oh we God. need to get that in it. It really was a shambolic experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I confess I've not heard of that one. No, you won't done, no. <laughs> Is it still on More 4? Uh, I think it's on it 4OD? It'll be on YouTube, but it was 2006, so it won't probably be on 4OD. 4OD probably didn't exist then, did it? No, it didn't. But I know they've added some, they've gone back and added some mm. stuff, so you might get lucky. You might still be able to watch <laughs> they it. They might have added that one. <laughs> Nathan Varley's on there. Oh, OK. <laughs> He just pulled a face when he said that. Did I? Yeah. I like Nathan Barley. You're not a fan? Um, (laughs) I don't really. I didn't really watch it much. That that was um, Chris uh, thing, wasn't it? Yeah, Chris Morris. Chris Morris. I think I would find it funnier now that I've been working in the London media environment. Well, now you literally work in Shoreditch. Yeah, it, well, yeah. When it was on, it was like 10 years ago, wasn't it? And I didn't understand what any of it was about. I was just kind of going, why are they riding unicycles down? Why are they? And now, of course, it's like, well, clearly, <laughs> this is completely accurate. But almost so accurate that it's not funny. It's just, well, you're just doing what these people do. You're just, you know, showing it exactly as it is. It's very easy um, to satire that culture. That's a transitive verb, isn't it? Uh, satirise? I don't know. Satirise, thank I you. I think yeah. it was probably a bit ahead of its time. That's my theory on, on Nathan Barley. But maybe maybe your listeners will disagree. Do, they, do places like Shoreditch exist outside of um, Shoreditch, though? Because mm, Brighton's know. quite an amazing little bubble. Do you know Brighton at all? No, but I get a sense of the maybe it's similar. Thing. Very yeah. very arty. Like even the builders look a bit funky. You know, <laughs> they have those teeny tiny goaty beards that grow just under their lip in a tiny triangle. Brighton's just like, this amazing little rainbow-coloured creative bubble with bongos playing as a soundtrack. <laughs> Eastbourne is um, like a retirement home with one really funky art gallery that everyone complains about because it's so good and contemporary I don't know it's um, yeah really really different it's very bohemian in Brighton you Sorry. know yeah, yeah. The Buddhist, Buddhist centre, I went past the Buddhist centre this morning and it was rammed <laughs> happy Christmas Rue happy Christmas what neighbor. did you get me I, I oh I didn't bring it oh I've got some uh, some some snacks for you <laughs> we'll have them later okay that's fine what did you get me I got you some snacks. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, I'll get no. I got you something. I'll, it's in the car. Um, <laughs> just, I'm just gonna go over there um, to the shop. It's snack time. Dave's not with us today. It's snack time, but we're we're on our own. Yes, that we Dave left you to creative differences. <laughs> no, he definitely didn't. But we're not on our own because we we put ourselves in the warm, salty hands of Lee Maguire. Lee Maguire from well, sort of an early um, creator of Snack Spot with Dave. Ah, uh, you know, as as Dave uh, mentioned before, I wanted the uh, site to be called Snack Hunt, yes. and uh, <laughs> Dave didn't think it had legs as as far as commercial propositions went. So right. Uh, right. he's he's really I, I refer to him as my snack sensei, in that you know he's he is really the seasoned expert in snacking. I. You know, I could, I could never fill those snack boots. <laughs> in order to make sure that you're ready, Lee, to yeah. lead us into snack time. Will there be a trial of some kind? <laughs> well, we need at least to find out what your favourite snacks are, I suppose. As a kid, Christmas was the only time of the year that you would ever eat tangerines. Mm. Anything that be, could, could be shoved into a big sock, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. There was this sort of subclass of, of food, <laughs> which was sock food. Yeah. Mm. Un- unwrapped. 
just a tangerine and sometimes a, a walnut. I, Not, find, I find that all, all, all manner of nuts. <laughs> yes, <laughs> all the nuts. And and as as an adult, I I don't often indulge in eating out of socks <laughs> as as I used to. Um, well, stockings, but you know, yeah. They in my family, they they were like large fishermen's socks. Oh, right. Rather than, you know, sort of traditional... pillowcases. What did you have? Pillowcases? Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was normal. <laughs> My word. <laughs> you came from a very good family, didn't you? Well. We had, uh, well, in my, my younger years, we had just big socks, yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh, you poor deprived boys. And I still eat out of pillowcases. <laughs> <laughs> I like visiting London in the day, but I find it quite frightening. Mm. Yeah, before I came here, I was um, wandering around with all my, my possessions sort of clutched to me and um, <laughs> like really aware of everyone around. <laughs> it's really pathetic. It's true, though. Feeling like mugging was not just around to, the corner. Yeah, not used to traffic or crowds. Are you, are you a bit like that, really? Because no. you don't live in London at all either. I've, so. I've worked here for a couple of years now and I've uh, naturalised. Yeah. 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 yeah, I've got used to it. Where do you live? I live in Southampton. Oh, so right. it's actually a similar journey to your one. I've got to the stage where when people are looking for help on the tube and they get on the tube and they're not sure where they're going, I'll, mm. be, I'll be straight in there. Oh, yeah, love, that's going to... I, I wouldn't say love, but I'll say, oh, yeah, that's going to Waterloo. <laughs> I'm very helpful on oh, the tube. Yeah. I love talking to people on the trains and on the platforms. Don't you? I was doing that earlier. I was at Clapham and this man was flipping through those big wall charts with all the times on. Do you know the ones? <laughs> yeah. And uh, I knew he was looking for Waterloo. I could tell because he, <laughs> he just moved the whole watch in one go to get to W. And so I stood behind him and I went, you're looking for Waterloo too, aren't you? And he was quite impressed. I said, we need Platform 10, and we went together. Oh, that's really nice. There's something about being friendly, because nobody local does that. Nobody talks to anybody. But people who are outsiders who come here a lot, I think they're the most helpful people. Putting myself and yourself firmly in that category (laughs) helpful and nice. Is it true that people don't talk to each other here because there's so many people it would take all day? You'd just get bored, wouldn't you? What do you think, Lady? I don't know. I mean, I find that people do talk to me quite a lot, which I find very disconcerting. But people ask me directions a lot now, which I'm quite... I feel quite sort of far. I, I must look like a local. Um, and I, I sort of direct them completely the wrong way and just go, well, at least I directed them. <laughs> my um, my um, husband used to um, go, have this thing he did with his friends in Bridlington where they'd go up to a tourist and say, um, excuse me, do you know where um, Newhurst Road is? And the tourist go, no, sorry, I don't. And they'll go, right, you want to go to the end, turn left, carry on down. That's give t- oh, it's awful, isn't it? What a thing to do. <laughs> Happy Christmas. Happy Christmas to every everyone listening. <laughs> One and all. You and yours. To you and your kin. Okay. Exactly. And what good tidings have we brought today? It's it's the pot Noel Dull, which is <laughs> is a pot noodle, but Christmassy. Hey. And what's in a pot Noel Dull? Well, it's turkey flavour. It's roast turkey and stuffing flavour sauce. And get this, a little sachet of mulled wine flavour sauce. Oh, Just to finish it off. Goodness. Just to top off that experience. Uh, Layla's... Doing international sign language for digging. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> she's going to get some forks. So, uh, Lee, open, open, all right, open okay. the pot. I, I wonder if it's going to like explode like a Christmas cracker. No. Glad it didn't. Oh, it does have there a it, it does yes. have a cracker joke. The cracker joke is on the lid, and I'll try it out on you. How does Jack Frost get to work? Uh, in something nippy. By icicle. Oh, do you see? Yeah, you that's a groaner. Is there a joke in there? Yeah, it's yes, got a Christmas cracker joke. Would you like What's to? I miss? What's I miss? I'll do the I joke again. Okay. How does Jack Frost get to work? Is it by icicle? You <laughs> 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 cheated. Oh, I love cracker jokes. So not only is that a cracker joke, it's also a, a bauble for your Christmas tree. 
What, the lid of a pot noodle? Yeah. Look at it. They've, they've yes, it's, it's, oh given, it's given some instructions here. Uh, stick a biro through the lid of through the top oh, of nice. the lid. You will have a biro. Shove an elastic band or other suitable hanging device through the hole. Hang on tree. Rear view mirror, ear, or anywhere in need of some pot noodle festivity. Repeat with more lids to taste. And uh, I think it's quite dangerous uh, for the... Uh, for the single man sitting at home on Christmas Day with a pot noodle to actually use the word hanging. <laughs> <laughs> I think of you as quite a British comedian in a lot of ways. Like some of the things I've seen you in, like live and on telly as well. I, I wonder how, how it would go down with an American audience. Like I think, would they understand about that? Would they know what it is to have like a village hall or, you know, and, the, and there's, um, and it's lovely and it's like perfect and you get it straight away if you're British. Um, where do you go for your inspiration for characters and ideas like that? Is it your own background? Well, first of all, the thing about American comedy and the difference, um, I was talking to um, Julian Barrett years ago and he said that him and Noel Fielding went over to America and did some, some comedy and he said it was unbelievable. They didn't understand anything they were saying and so they only <laughs> laughed at Noel pulling a face because it was the only thing they could understand was funny. Um, but I do have a couple of American fans. I've got, I've got four fans in total. You might like to know this. And two of them are American. And, um, and they really love Ideal with Johnny Vegas. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm surprised that they can understand the accents to some extent, although that's a really... I don't want that to be a rude thing to say. But it's just that some English people complain about the accents in ideals, you know what I mean? So for Americans, the accents is quite amazing, impressive. But for inspiration with characters, um, I get inspired by people I meet and people I know. And when I say that, people get a bit worried that they're going to turn up. But um, I wrote a character that's based on my mum and another one on my gran and um, another one on this woman I saw giving a talk and her PowerPoint presentation wasn't really doing its thing and she was absolutely petrified. And, um, and so I did a character based on her, um, somebody that's got, got a lot of confidence in their subject, but the technical thing is making them really, really frightened. Mm. You know? um, I was just thinking this morning, I really do need to get some new characters, but it's, it's difficult. I've never done the kind of um, traditional ones like um, Jobsworthy Woman. Do you, know those, do you know, like a kind of really snappy secretary mm. um, type, or one of those nasal, um, hello, please listen at the dais desk in boots. Mm. Do you know what I mean? The sort of characters that you immediately think a woman should be doing because mm. they're everywhere. And I was thinking, maybe. Maybe I could do one of those. If I could do it really, really well, maybe I could do one of those, but I wouldn't want to do one of them just for the sake of it. I'd have to meet somebody and then space it on them because I think if you do a generic type, I just think it's, it's not for me. I'd rather do something based on a, one real person mm. and then add to that because when it's based on somebody real, other people can tell, I think. Yeah. Even if they don't know them, they'll know someone like that. It's so weird how really unusual people are universal. One of my characters, um, Peg Bird, is based on a, the woman who works in the Charleston Farmhouse shop. I don't know if she's there anymore, so I'm saying this now quite boldly <laughs> on the old podcast. Well, not um, and, and, um, and it's kind of um, like a bohemian craft woman who's into Virginia Woolf and you know, that kind of stuff. And I have so many... All When I did my little tour, all over the country, that people would say, I, I know someone like that, yeah. or I really like that person, whatever. And I just think that's brilliant, mm. that if you find something funny, it's very likely that other people will too, and it doesn't have to be someone they know, but if it's from a kernel of truth, I think that it's got heart and it's got mm. a bit of balls to it, hasn't it, then? When I first did that crafty woman, a man came up to me afterwards and said, um, I work at the Charleston Farmhouse... I think he was, the direct, he was the director of the Charleston Farm, so that's right. And I said to him, oh, that, that was based on the woman in your shop. Just blurted it out. And he looked to his friend, he said, I told you, it was Myrna. And he recognised the character. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, and so a couple of months later, I got a phone call from the Charleston saying, we know that you take the piss out of us. Would you like to come and do it here for our um, charity event? So I went and did my character. 
and it was um, brilliant to do that. It was like I'd, it was like I'd reached the pinnacle in my career, and I could now retire. But, um, was she in the audience? Well, no, because just before I went on, um, the, the press had a bell come up to me, and she said, "She's now left the building. She doesn't like crowds." <laughs> so she went just before I did it. I don't know if she would have recognised herself. I don't know if I'd recognise myself if someone took me off. Would you? You wouldn't, would you? I don't think you, I would. I think you'd want to. I think you'd no. be like, that can't be me. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think, oh, there's, totally somebody, there's somebody who wears glasses and does crafts. That could be anyone, couldn't <laughs> you? <laughs> I like that idea that she's likeable as well. Uh, do you have any unlikable characters that you do? Um, I think a lot of my characters are unlikable, but I also think <laughs> that when I find something funny in someone, it's because I've got it in myself. Yeah. Right. So one woman, one character is a French woman who um, was really very assured and quite snappy, and when we got talking to each other, we were, doing, we were working together in France and we got talking about English puddings, right? And I was saying, um, I don't like sweet food. Oh, except crumble, you know, pond pudding. And just like this huge list of English stodgy puddings, you know. And, um, and then she said, um, you've never been to a French patisserie, you know, what the fuck? And, and so it was like England versus France. We were like <laughs> warring with each other, do you know. We went swimming in the pool together and she said, um, you, your mascara, what was it? One of us said, oh, your mascara's running. And the other one said, um, oh, don't, don't worry, nobody's looking at us anyway. Or just, it was just like this kind of constant putting down of each other. <laughs> so, but I, I wrote a character based on her. And she was also talking about desperately trying to get a boyfriend. But because she was quite fierce... It was quite funny. Do you know what I mean? Like, what bloke is going to want to, like, you know, arm wrestle with this really dominating, very independent woman? But I think the reason why I found her so funny is because there's bits of her in me, and I think you see that in yourself, and it's almost like a therapy, like a way of dealing with bits of yourself, isn't it? When you look back on things sometimes, you can think, oh, that's interesting. I didn't realise I was doing that. I was reading a thing about Alan Bennett earlier, and he was talking about the lady in the van, and he, I could quote it if I get bothered to get my book out. Something about um, when he looked out of his window when he was writing, he saw her van side on and he said and that's what it was like with his writing he's he's constantly writing with the subjects at the side so he's writing about himself but it's to the side do you know and that's i think that that's what you kind of do with characters you hide behind it a bit i'd really love to do stand-up but i don't know how people can be so revealing i think it's really brave so i hide behind my characters yeah This is, I guess it takes a while for it to, you know, melt and, and mm. seep through, but I, I'm not seeing, it's quite thin, quite runny. Uh, well, is, is it there's a massive lump? lump underneath. Well, you've, you've really got to wait for that water to seep in. Yeah. I'll just keep poking it, I think. This smells really unpleasant. It sort of smells like a, a watery Christmas gravy. dinner. It smells like gravy. It smells like pot noodle. So, is it time, do you think, to, to put in the, uh, the mulled wine flavour sauce? Okay, shall I just put, put it all in? Or I think we should like have all of it. Dab? Doesn't taste a lot like mulled wine, but it does it's look a bit like jam. Un, it does look like a jam, and it does look unusual for a um, pot noodle sauce. It's particularly dark and red. It does look like it does look like some kind of jam jelly kind of wine. Mixing it up. Got lots of peas in it. It's the least. I mean, I've seen pot noodles in my life. This is the least appetising pot noodle I've ever seen. And that says a lot, I think. After all that, it just looks like every other pot noodle that you've ever seen. But worse. It's got the prettiest packaging I've ever seen, but inside it's just a big beige can of worms. I'm assuming you mean prettiest packaging within. Yeah, of course, yeah. Within the context of pot noodle. There's some sausages. Just a bit. To its credit, I'm getting a bit of a stuffing flavour off of it. 
The uh, mulled wine flavourings just disappeared. Yeah, that hasn't it's worked gone. at all. It's gone. But it's, it's all right. I mean, mm. to be honest, if I wanted to enjoy the flavours of Christmas, I think there are probably cheaper ways, or certainly um, more enjoyable ways, but... Pretty much all the pot noodle things <clears throat> we've had on have been quite nice. I sort of wish they hadn't bothered including the peas. Mm. Even more so, whatever that little red stringy thing is. That's not necessary. <laughs> If that's carrot, <laughs> there's something wrong with the world. But a lot of pot noodles have it in. It's yeah. a little sort of red slender strip. Everyone listening will know exactly what I mean. <laughs> not sure if it's pepper. Well, the vegetables are listed as onion, carrot, peas, so presumably it's It carrot. must be little thin mm. slices of carrot. Still. Well, it's Christmas Day. It's a traditional vegetarian Christmas. <laughs> and um, that's a good point. If you are a vegetarian you and you've no always idea. wondered what a yep. turkey uh, with, with stuffing and everything else tastes like... Yep. Is this, what, like is this, this what you'll be doing later on Christmas Day? Yeah, this is what I'm going to be having, definitely. When everyone else around you is eating turkey and... Yeah, rather than you're have real out. vegetables, I think I'll have... Um, I think I'll just sit there and boil, go and boil the kettle. <laughs> and what are you all fussing about <laughs> making such a big deal? And actually, if you were sat at the Christmas dinner table mm. and around you there were, um, <laughs> you know, there were actual vegetables, like a yeah. bit of roast potato, you could just throw it in. <laughs> You could, you could sort of um, thicken the pot noodle experience by throwing in some real food. I like the idea of, um, yeah. Has anyone ever, has anyone sort of said, well, we start off with pot noodle as the base, but then we, then we garnish with an entire other meal? <laughs> I'm going to get some sausages and stick them in there. It, has anyone used pot noodles as just sort of a side? Mm. You know, it's, it's the convenience of the pot. You'd feel guilty not eating it out of the pot. If nobody's done it on Come Dine With Me, yeah. then I think there's a gap in the market. I think we should go like on Come idea. Dine With Me yeah. and uh, yeah. serve everyone different pot noodle that sort of reflects t- their personality. Tipping one into a jacket potato. Oh, brilliant. Or just on the side. Yeah, you make a really fancy meal and then just a bit of pasta on the side, but it's actually... And it's still in that cone. You know how like when you go to a gourmet and it looks like it's been tipped out of a yoghurt pot in the middle of your plate, but it's just like that for a pot noodle. Like in a pot, it's sort of acceptable. <laughs> but if you were to take the contents of a pot noodle and put it in a bowl and serve it as dinner, it's not going to work. You don't want to be able to see too much of it at any one time. I think that's what it is. But also, I think the plastic pot is the essence of the pot noodle because you can buy noodles in packets. Mm. You know, the, the same sort the of thing. You, yes, yeah, essentially, you're paying, you're, the mug. You're, you paying you're paying for the vessel. And what what do you do after you've emptied it? Do you keep it? Do you refill it? Well, sometimes you use it for holding pens. And then now in the 21st century, in which people don't need more than one pen. <laughs> Lovely. Well, thanks very much for the um, the pot noodle. Whoever brought that, yeah. that was you, wasn't it? Really? Uh, it was me. I found it in my local Sainsbury's. There was some disagreement with Dave over email about where you can get these things mm. from. He said maybe Asda exclusive. Yeah. Oh yeah. no, Apparently. Sainsbury's selling them. Turn, yeah. Turns out the master is flawed. <laughs> <laughs> Always two there are: a master and an apprentice. <laughs> character that is a dolphin yeah i did that last year uh, this year at the green man and um what's the story there it's well, an extraordinary idea me and my friend found an inflatable dolphin in a charity shop and it was my height so we cut a hole for my face and slit a slip down the back yeah. and made a hole for my feet and um and i got inside it and and then i just wrote a sort of um thing that i thought a dolphin would say and it was basically the joke was really that humans love dolphins so much mm. and the joke was that dolphins think humans are just idiots but they're that they're very sarcastic about it so i had a dolphin sort of saying you're so clever you're so wonderful we love you we love you. you're so clever and then going on about it i, I wrote it around the time That's times nice. in 
Yeah, it was a kind of generic foreign accent. Like, um, yeah, it was around the time Tams and Aithwaite was swimming with dolphins, you know. Right. So I was going on about her swimming with them dolphins and how really they were swearing at her and she thought they were, you know, cooing and it made her cry and how hilarious that is. And, yeah, but it went really well. And the, um, the first time I did it, these three teenage boys came up to me afterwards um, at a stand-up night and said, when you walked on stage, we thought, what the hell is this? Except they swore. And then they said, but um, actually everything you said was really true, which is really great. <laughs> I didn't expect that at all. Because you never know how something's going to go down yeah. until you've done it. But true rather than funny. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Layla, for that. I, I was happy with true. Well, but now I can feel I failed again. Uh, no, I mean, I think, I think they chose the wrong word by accident that they meant. Yeah, um, no, you're right. It's pretty weird that they said everything you said was true, as if they'd go to a stand-up night. See a woman, comedy. Yeah, a, yeah, yeah, 30-year-old woman in a dolphin costume. <laughs> Looking for some insights into mammalian behaviour. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, what what do you do to um, help inspire you when you need to think of a thing for a comedy thing? Is there a trick? Um, I think what's really inspiring is when you've got a deadline. <laughs> and it's not yeah. very artistic sounding. <laughs> but there's nothing like a deadline to give you a kick at the bum and give you a new idea. And um, um, at the end of August, I got a phone call saying, do you want to do a new show at our theatre in October? And I went, yep. And then I had a month and a half to write and, and perform and do an hour-long show, which was really great. And I chose the theme of Youth Club, um, which, again, is veering in the Village Hall territory, mm. which is where, what I love. Um, yeah, and so I wrote a, a show set in 1987 at um, a youth club in Cornwall, and I based it on my diaries from, 90, from the 1980s, you know. And I was really pleased with it in the end, but at the beginning, when you're starting out with a new creative project, it can just be horrific. Mm. I don't know if you experience mm. that with your writing, <laughs> yeah. but you get an idea and you just feel so uninspired by it. Mm. And there's nothing like a deadline to force you to find a way to make it work do you know yeah, what I mean? you have like an idea of the end like at the beginning you kind of think well I know sort of what it's going to look like on the last day and then you have like six months and you just kind of go <laughs> I don't know what's going to go between now and then it's just going to be whatever what do you do when you're meant to be working what are your displacement tasks that you do um, I clean the flat and yeah and I go out and get some flowers <laughs> and put them in a vase and think oh well I've got I think because I, I think in my head I can't can't do anything until the flats were nice and tidy because that's the problem obviously they're standing in the way <laughs> in my computer that's right in front of me there are crumbs in the kitchen i can't be creative oh, until don't. I'm oh crumbs are the worst that's what i ever heard of was um, somebody decanting um half bottle of mayonnaise into another half bottle of mayonnaise <laughs> so before they carried on with their writing can't um, work until this mayonnaise situation sorted out <laughs> bleaching the clothesline Oh. That was quite a good one to be doing before you oh get God. on with your writing. I wanted to ask you about your diary. Tell me about that, because you, you said just now you, you were using it for inspiration, for sort of, you know, what life was like in the mid-80s. Are you still keeping it up? Do you still write every day? Yeah, I do, um, just to keep my hand in, really, you know. And I also do um, drawing diaries. I've, I've got about 15 sketchbooks, you know, where um, I write the date and do a um, cartoon strip about what happens that day, you know, just that kind of thing. And um, it's really nice, actually, because then you remember things in detail that you wouldn't have remembered it and when it's good stuff then that's really nice and, and obviously if you're going to be bothered to do a whole drawing about it you know you kind of tend to cherry pick the good bits and yeah um, I wish um, I'd kept more diaries when I was younger because if I'd known how useful they'd be now it would have been, would have been great but yeah um, no it's a lovely thing to do well, I was coming here today to do this interview and I was thinking, I get a bit nervous because I'd like to be seen to be you know, a nice, interesting person. And I get worried that I'll come across as really boring and self-obsessed, right? And, um, and I think that when you keep diaries... For me, it was never completely private. There was always a fear that someone might find it. So it was still trying to be cool and sweet and funny and nice, you know. Mm. But then bits of me would seep 
out. Like, you can't squash your whole personality, can you? You can try, but bits always glimmer out, and that's what those diaries are like. And it's what's really nice about it is you see yourself when you were 15 or whatever, and then, like, you know, 20 years later, you really haven't changed much. You've still got these little, like, glimmers coming out, these little nerdy insecurities, you know, where you just want to be normal or whatever. It sounds a lot like how um, kind of in the the public journal keeping that's, that is how some people treat blogging it's that kind of like you know I'm partly writing this myself but actually I partly want other people to think of me in a certain way or, or see this angle on me that they might have otherwise missed um, and is your diary something that you'd ever think about publishing? Um, I don't think so because it wasn't um, I, w- I wasn't uh, focused enough to think right this is a diary for me that somebody might see whereas I think with a blog it's obvious that other people are going to look at it, isn't it? Whereas my diary was hidden down the back of the bookcase and, and my main concern was my brother might find it. But I, um, I wrote it as vanity, really, that this idea that other people would read it was a very vain idea and I was actually jealous of Anne Frank for having um, more interesting things to write about and having it published, which is really bad, I know. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> so, yeah, but it veered too much between these little um, little things that you say as a, as a kid and, and being childish and, and then trying to be poetic and thoughtful and then trying to say something to impress the world I mean it's full of awful embarrassing things like statements like um, I consider myself to be creative yet sensitive some people might consider me to be a punk but I don't have green hair I just tend to like alternative clothing it's like Christ almighty I I would be hated by the whole of Britain if I published it (laughs) and yet we'd all see ourselves in it as well wouldn't we going back to what you were saying earlier there's there's an element of self-obsessed teenager that's in all of us now as well yeah I loved Adrian Mole would you ever read those when you were young that was just incredible and the fact that their mum was able to because Sue Townsend had teenage boys didn't she and she, so she obviously saw the comedy and the way they dealt with life. Oh, she was so good. I love those books. But yeah, my very first um, comedy character was a girl at a school disco not knowing how to dance and seeing a boy and trying to impress him. And uh, I remember when I first did that, some people afterwards said that was really nice because we felt like that, but we would never admit it. Yeah. yeah, so I don't see that. I just thought it was hilarious that you're desperately trying to fit in, you know. Mm. I do it now. I'm still trying to fit in. I've got this really boring scarf in my bag that I bought. It was £50. But I thought if I buy that really boring scarf, I'll look quite normal and I'll fit in and everything oh. will be easier. <laughs> oh, that's heartbreaking. Oh therapy session it's breaking my heart oh, no. Um, no but I love that you said that and yet you've got these gloves which we have to talk about I'm afraid oh, they're because amazing. they're absolutely beautiful they're sort of um, leather sheepskin mittens well maybe you should describe them if you can yes, they're suede um, sheepskin mittens um, in black with a um, white rabbit's face uh, at the end of your hand so if, when you put it on it's a little bit like a glove puppet with the nose at, the, at your finger and the, like the eyes on the sides yeah, um, yeah, you can use this to entertain children on buses and trains. <laughs> <They're> <laughs> making really friends cool. with people in bars. <laughs> no, I'm just no, I'm just trying to play on the lonely thing. I didn't mean it at all. I love that you, you're trying to fit in with your with your fancy scarf, and then at the same time you're you're accessorising with these rabbit glove puppet. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I live in Eastbourne. Nobody cares what you look like there. I've got some socks with the individual toes, and each toe has got a face on it and a musical note. And I wear them with open-toed sandals, and um, they get quite a lot of looks in Eastbourne, but quite nice um, looks and compliments. So they've got individual toe yeah. elements, like gloves for your feet. Yeah. They sound really irritating. No, they're cosy, no. completely encasing each toe. In it keeps, an individual keeps you warm, does it? 
Yeah, I've seen the, I've seen them sure. for little children. I don't know if I've seen animals. <laughs> Surely that's going to be tickly, though. That's going to be that's, tickling. That's yeah. what I always thought. Yeah, because I mean, I do cover a lot of very, very small children's clothes mm. and think, God, if only they did like a baby grow for adults, or if only they did that. They do. You know, they've got baby grow for adults in American Apparel, <laughs> all in one suit, a button up the front. Oh, yeah, brilliant. Yeah, but you can get um, you're quite slim. You could get ch- clothes in hennies for ch- um, children's clothes in hennies, tax free. <laughs> do you ever do that? No, I don't uh, know. But yeah. actual baby, I mean baby clothes, like <laughs> tiny. And I just think, God. Have you ever bought some to put on your wall later? No, I'm not. I'm not I, don't, I don't think of them as like, as things for, <laughs> I don't think of them as things that babies deserve. <laughs> well, baby clothes and animal clothes, they're the two things that I kind of covet. Hang on, what's animal clothes? Well, there's a shop on Finchley Road. Have you seen this? And they just sell like jumpers for dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Um, like little baseball caps and little fleeces and um, hoodies and everything and like little bling things with sparkly collars and you've been in Build a Bear workshop um, I have been in some and that's I still have the shoes are amazing they're like just completely Stop. round like but with a little stiletto heel and stuff and glitter oh, on cool. them oh cool like they're my really... little pony shoes <laughs> yeah. do they do shoes for my they oh, did yes. yeah they did when I was Well, it's um, we were going to talk about Christmassy films because um, obviously this is the time of year to watch lots of films yeah. and telly. Being the week of Christmas, mm. people will be uh, settling down on their sofas. I haven't looked actually at the Radio Times or whatever it is one does these days. A lot of films that are sort of considered Christmassy aren't actually, like they're always on at Christmas, but they don't actually have any Christmas in them. Um, and it's a bit weird and you sort of think they probably will, but then when you watch it you kind of go, oh, there wasn't any Christmas in that, that was weird. Like what sort of film? Well, the film that people uh, in the UK, at least, associate with uh, with Christmas television schedules is uh, Sound of Music, which which isn't Christmassy at all. Doesn't mention Christmas um, once. And I believe the reason for that is that the BBC completely overbid on the rights, mm. and in order to get their money back, <laughs> were essentially forced to schedule the same movie every year for Christmas. I mean, it's roughly equivalent to It's a Wonderful Life playing on American television at Christmas. But that is Christmassy. It is a Christmassy movie, yeah. and I've seen it, and I can confirm that it is Christmassy. Yeah. But the odd thing about that movie is, even though I've seen it, I most associate it with people in other Christmassy movies watching it on television. Yeah, it's a meta-Christmassy movie. Yeah, good so, point. So the classic example would be, for example, somebody in Gremlins mm. watching mm. It's a Wonderful mm. Life. We don't look forward to Christmas premieres anymore. Mm. I think video rental and internet distribution and and just sort of easy access to movies means mm. that nobody's excited about Christmas TV premieres as far as well as far as I can tell. Yeah, the TV premiere is sort of quite low down the list of when films are being hyped. Um, what about films that you don't at all think of as having Christmas in them, but actually they do, and it's quite often tacked on the end somehow, and that's always quite funny, like In About a Boy, for example. But I was thinking is about... At the end of the About a Boy, they have Christmas together, yeah, and they all get together as a family. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. But it's, no, it's not at all relevant in the whole rest of the film. You know, um, Four Weddings and a Funeral, does that have Christmas in it? Oh, I don't know now. No, it's got, it's got weddings, though. Mm, that, it's not Four Weddings, a Funeral and Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> I that was the sequel. Yeah. Four Weddings and a Christmas. The, the, the Gremlins film, the first one, mm. uh, is, is a bit Christmassy. Yeah, and... I believe the second one is probably Christmassy as well. Oh. I, I haven't seen it in a while, but... Uh... I think it might be Christmassy as well. The second one's set in a TV in a in a, um, in a large office building. Mm. Oh, that's right. Uh, much oh, as much as like Die, Die Hard, Hard exactly. is Christmas in a Die large Hard office building. Yes. <laughs>
I played Anne Frank when I was um, 25. I was so paranoid that I'd look ancient, you know, because I was meant to be 15. I can see you as Anne Frank, actually. Well, when I went to the audition, I wore, like, 1940s clothing and I had my hair in, like, a dark... Exactly the same hairstyle. Mm. So, uh, <laughs> what well, is that like a like a bob? Yeah, kind of like a bob, but it wasn't like sleek, was it? Her hair, it was like mine, like quite w- mm. wide and what's the word, <laughs> frizzy and thick. Yeah, and I walked in, and the director wrote on a bit of paper, "Is this her?" and passed it to his producer, and I got it. <laughs> Did you see? Did you see him? Right. No, he told me afterwards because oh, right. I walked in like this frightening vision. <laughs> a bit dark, isn't it? When did you start acting, Joe? When? Yeah, you were saying what was that when you were? 18? 25. I did Vision Performing Arts in Brighton, Mm. which is um, a degree where um, where you do either music, dance or theatre specialise, you know, and then also art alongside it. Mm. And, um, yeah, I specialise in theatre, but I very quickly went into comedy because um, my my moving theatre just made people laugh. (laughs) So I I just went where it was was naturally going. (laughs) What sort of thing was it that was making people laugh? I wanted to do poignant stuff about being lonely and then... um, But but because it was sort of performance art, the original idea would become quite sort of, um, you know, stretched out and contrived and it ended up being something that was completely... um, uh, indescribable or undefinable or just bizarre do you know what I mean so one show I did was meant to be um, about envy and so I thought well, I'll write about being jealous of children who are really good at sports and I ended up building the front of a ship and making a museum pole with gold um, sticks and a red rope in front of it and being an old woman in un- um, thermal underwear I'm knocking the pole over and standing at the front of the ship <laughs> singing like a siren it was really stupid and weird so yeah, well, I was also in, I was asked to be in someone else's theatrical piece, and um, we were in a lineup, and it was all about crime and everything. And my and we had a, one bit where we all had to start laughing, mm. and my friend Ralph told me he just looked at my legs to do that, which is charming. <laughs> <laughs> You've done quite a few of your own one-woman shows. What was the first one you did? Um, I think it was called John and Iris Nightmare Years of Pain, and um, that headline, <laughs> that headline was from an article in the front of the Daily Mail or something. I think it was about the actor who played Darth Vader being an alcoholic. <laughs> it's called My Nightmare Is of Pain. So I used that for my first show, and um, it was just a load of characters, one after the other, really. I think I built a bar for that one, like mm. a wooden, like a cardboard bar that I could stand behind, and I made monkey puppets with yellow dusters that cleaned it as the audience came in. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, and then emerged from behind the bar and uh, did my different things and, yeah, different characters. Yeah, that was in 1998. So, yeah, quite a long time ago now, 12 years ago. You're quite into your um, 1940s. Well, you've got a character who's sort of from the 1940s, or is she supposed to be sort of in the 1940s but existing in the real world somehow? Well, nobody really knows. Right. <laughs> <laughs> she certainly, you know who I mean, though. She's yeah. certainly vintage-inspired. Yeah, I did um, a character based on Celia Johnson, and um, I did it because I got a phone call from a local radio station looking for an advert voiceover. This was years ago, and they said, um, "Can you do a Celia Johnson type impression?" I went, "Yes," because it was for ten pounds. I mean, it's amazing what you can do for ten pounds when you need to. And um, so I walked around the flat, going, "I know I'm being silly. I'm being terribly silly. I think I love you," and just sort of trying to think about the film without watching it, you know, mm. and um, and got it quite quickly. And then I, I thought what I liked about that film was how. Um, she veers between everything being really delightful and lovely to being doom and gloom and disaster and then back up again, just yeah. this really... And almost no... Well, no, it's not true that there's no reason for those uh, mood swings, but it's almost like you could, if you said something in a really delightful way, you know, and then said the same thing in a really dramatic way, you could just choose which way to go. And so I wrote 
this monologue. I remember sitting at my desk for about two and a half hours, knowing that I wanted to write this thing, and then I just started writing it, and I, and I had to keep on going, and I didn't stop till I'd written five pages, and then I had a rest and a cup of tea, and I read it back, and it, it, was, it was all there. It was the first and only time it's ever happened, you know? Mm. And um, it's because I knew the pattern of it, the, the up and down of it, and um, the way it, um, it was all about how her life was perfect and gorgeous and happy, but then things happened to her, you know? And, uh, well, that was lovely when I wrote that. And the next morning, I don't know if you ever get this, but um, you wake up and you think, before you realise anything, you think, there's something in my life that's really nice. What is it? It's like Christmas Day feeling, and then you go, yeah. oh, yeah, it's that thing I wrote that didn't exist before, and then you read it, and it's still quite good. And you, oh, that's nice. How long do your characters last? Like, what's, what's your longest-running character? I think it probably is the Celia character. Um, uh, I've, I recently... Um, did a new one of her and um and i also did a television pilot based on her and um i think now it's beginning to run out of steam for me because i watched the film again a couple of months ago and thought i'll write a new celia and i'll just watch the film to remind myself and i ended up watching the entire film and crying at the end it's so beautiful that film i love it i just thought who do i think i am Mm. watching this incredible bit of art trying to glean some bit of comedy out of it it's just a beautiful film and so i think i don't know what uh, what's happening but it feels like as you get older you get more conscientious about things you know when you're younger it's like everything's game for a lot yeah. everything's up for like laughing at and as you get older I don't know I just feel more I don't probably like you say like crying about things and being more touched by things and being more appreciative about other people's artwork I couldn't do it I couldn't write anything about it I just thought it's beautiful as it is mm. that bit at the end when um, she's sitting with her husband and she's really really she's an incredible actress Celia Johnson isn't she and she's really really upset and he says thank you for coming back to me it's so powerful and I watched the extras where the uh, cinematographer said that even though he worked on the film even now, it gives him goosebumps every time and it makes him cry. It's just amazing that, yeah, she could have had this affair, but really her husband mm. is just lovely all mm. along. So have you got an advent calendar this year? I have an advent calendar from two years ago that a friend bought me that I have not yet used, oh, which I'll be using one? this year. No, it's Lego. <gasps> oh, my God. I know. Oh God. You open the little doors and instead of little bits of chocolate, you get like four or five bits of lego and then you build a thing and then by the end of the month you've got a whole bunch do of lego you know what the final scene is no i don't but do you build the you use all the bits of lego yeah. to then build you a build lego stuff. nativity is there a lego jesus in the <laughs> i've got a feeling it's it's sort of city stuff like you're building um little trolleys and cars and oh. like skyscrapers and stuff right. i don't think it's a uh, very sort of not very sort of christmas story yeah i don't think bethlehem's involved in, <laughs> in uh, lego but what's what's joe what's your uh, advent calendar um, mine is a playmobile nice. and uh basically um it's woodland animals in a woodland oh. and then and then on uh, the final days you get father christmas with a sledge of vegetables for the animals <laughs> nice. i did actually make a lego jesus last year it was um it was uh Patrick's head out of Spongebob Lego so just like a pink pointy head Patrick the starfish you know Spongebob I know Spongebob Squarepants so I don't, all the characters don't know Patrick all right, Patrick's the um, flesh coloured starfish with the purple and green pants so his head on a brown uh, fora of Lego what do you call, do you call them foras? what's a fora? oh like a, 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 brick a four, four by two, two yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 On, on that and that was Jesus in the manger I want Joe to sing the Britpop song but I don't know if she will because we are in a public space here and um, there's no piano I'll have a go okay so this is what I can remember though we live today in a land that's free there's a tear that's in my eye and a tug upon every heart string when I think of days gone by do you remember Britpop in 1990 
twenty-five. The skies were as blue as one Monet drew, and we all felt so alive. Do you remember Britpop with Fred Anderson's histrionics? Everyone knew that we'd make it through with menswear and the stereophonics. Do you remember Britpop, the blur oasis war? Noel Gallagher said he hoped they'd die of AIDS and the papers gave them what for. That's really good. Thank you. I love that you sang it in the voice as well. I'm watching you, upbraiding you, who is moving you and saying. Joe Neary, uh, lady comedian, uh, crafty lady, nice person. Thank you uh, very, very much for coming on Chiffron Stop and making us laugh. Um, you're, you're brilliant. Thank you very much, Rue. Thank you. I've had a lovely time. Good. So have we. Haven't we, Layla? We certainly have. Yes. It's been delightful. <laughs> Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Shift Run Stop. Shiftrunstop.co.uk. I'm a computer. I'm a computer.